Hello, and welcome to New Books and Folklore, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Tim Thurston, one of the co-hosts of the channel, and today I spoke with Professor Andrea Kida of East Carolina University about her new book, The Kiss of Death, Contagion, Contamination, and Folklore, recently published with Utah State University Press. This book examines a variety of issues ranging from patient zero narratives to popular culture's representations of zombies and vampires to ideas about the safety and the effects of the HPV vaccine. It was a really fascinating conversation. I learned a tremendous amount. And even though it's a little bit longer than the normal podcast, I hope that you will enjoy it as much as I did. Thanks very much. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Folklore, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your co-host, Tim Thurston, and today I'm joined by Andrea Kida, who is Associate Professor of Folklore at East Carolina University. Andrea, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Today we're discussing your new book, The Kiss of Death, Contagion, Contamination, and Folklore, recently published with Utah State University Press. Um, but before we get to the book uh, itself, I was wondering if you would if we could start a little bit personal, folklorists, folklorists always have the most interesting stories about how they came to the discipline. And I was just wondering, I just have to know, what's your folklore origin story? Oh, that's a good one. Um, so I started out as a history major. That's what I did my undergrad in. And um, I really enjoyed history. I loved history, but I would always get sort of irritated of how oral history was often used, where it was sort of used to collaborate what people already knew instead of um, coming up with new information. And that really bothered me. Um, so I had to I had to kind of figure out what else I was going to do. So um, I love to tell my, my students now, if they make mistakes in grad school, that's okay. I quit a grad program um, where I was fully funded, which is very horrifying to think of now. But uh, so I started out in a history um, uh, MA and I realized pretty quickly, I'm like, no, this is not what I want to do. Um, I, I have this this interest in these other stories. So I started taking some extra classes. And I had a TA for a cultural anthropology class, who said, you know, you should do folklore. And I was sort of like, what's that? I don't even know, like, that's a thing I can do. <laughs> so I started like immediately went home and started looking into it. And I think I started my applications that day. So I was like, yes, this is it. This is exactly what I've been looking for. This puts everything that I'm interested in together. Um, because I was sort of interested in, in the things too, that um, sort of historians sort of brushed off. Um, so I was interested in conspiracy theories and belief and, uh, you know, sort of all of these other areas that folklorists love to talk about, and they're really passionate about, but I felt like a lot of other disciplines just sort of ignored. And, and so that was, that was the beginning. And then, and so you mm-hmm. did your, am I right that you did your graduate work at MUN? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did my, um, my MA at Western Kentucky, and then my PhD at Memorial. Okay, excellent. Um, so across your career, you've written on a number of different topics, um, but they all, but health in particular seems to be something that's been really central to to your works. This is your second book, as I believe, right? Yes, it is. And your first was on vaccinations and public concern in history, and now this book on contagion, contagion and contamination. So how did how did how did this sort of uh, health focus come to be for you? You know, it was something when I got into folklore, I realized that it was the thing I was the most interested in when I started looking at all the things I could study. And and it was sort of both health and belief. Um, and the more I looked into it, the more I thought, you know, this is the the core of what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to figure out why people do what they do. I try to figure out how they make those decisions, what influences those decisions. And I thought that was so fascinating when it came to medicine because there's so much evidence. And I was, I was just sort of blown away about how many times you could tell someone the facts and that didn't make a difference at all in that what choices they would make. Um, and it was just, it was so interesting to hear that. And I also, I, I secondarily too, had, I was, I was mad on a lot of levels because I saw the way that, um, sort of standard or, or sort of official medicine treats people. And that made me really angry of, of how, they really, it was so paternalistic and it was so, you know, looking down on people. And I kept thinking like, this is why people choose folk medicine or they choose alternative medicine is because there's, there's so much conflict here in this space and there's so much um, issues with authority and power. And I just, that just absolutely fascinated me because 
to me, it was so obvious why people would choose uh, alternative medicine or folk medicine or, or vernacular medicine, whatever you want to call it, um, over sort of the, the official um, medicine that we see in, in hospitals and those kind of things. So it's been interesting, too, to see how um, medicine has responded to that as a, as a discipline and, and as a, you know, a professionalization process of, you know, how much cultural information do they include or exclude and, and how important does that become? So, yeah, that was kind of all the stuff I was interested in trying to figure out, you know, why this, like why, what threads bring all these things together and how do people make decisions that are, are honestly very important decisions and how do they make conflicting information work in their head? And that's kind of how I wound up, wound up here. <laughs> It's so interesting and so important, I feel, because I mean, one of the things I've been noticing recently is there's been this real sort of emphasis on getting data right and putting the facts out there. Yes. Um, but I feel like I feel like the the public health people also probably need to get their storytelling right as well. Absolutely. Um, yeah, because that that storytelling is actually what's more convincing to individuals. Um, I just got back from a, a vaccine conference at UCLA and we were talking about this and and how it doesn't like the facts kind of don't matter. And it's so funny because we are very much, especially with the area of fake news, where we're thinking of facts and, and talking about how to make facts, you know, matter more. And it's, it's because in part, they've never really mattered. It's been that the story about we tell about those facts is what matters. Um, so I talk about this with scientists all the time and say like, no, you know, you can have all the best information and it can be, you know, beautifully put together and in the, a wonderful package, but unless there's a narrative behind it, it's not going to work. So you have to have that storytelling there. Oh, I think, I mean, it, it makes so much sense. And I think you actually touch on it in the book, how sort of you bring it out of the health frame and into sort of a contemporary political frame. And I, I, I had a point in reading it, I was thinking, yes, the, there are certain parts of society where unencumbered by facts, they can just make up stories and it works really well. Um, and the, the people who have a lot of facts to work with and, and data to work with sometimes really struggle in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that is, it's in part, it's missing in their training in a lot of different places that they're not taught about this importance of, of how to communicate. They're taught things like, okay, you know, this is how you get a medical history, or this is how you, you know, bring up this topic, but they're not really taught about how to tell their own stories. They're, they're sort of seen as this removed, um, you know, abstract thing that is not really involved in the healthcare. When so many people tell me, you know, I trust my doctor and it's like, well, why do you trust your doctor? Well, I just get this impression from them. Like I just, I can tell they're sincere or because they told me this story. So sometimes it's even getting that trust is just depends on how the, the physician communicates with the patient. Um, and they're missing the mark so much, so often on that when it's really the things that, you know, it's the little things that, that, that really kind of connect them with their patient. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, now, so from health more broadly mm -hmm. into this book in particular, um, how did this book come to be, um, sort of this this attention to contagion and contamination in folklore? Uh, so it's kind of funny. I was uh, kind of finishing up my, my uh, tenure packet and thinking about what was next. And I looked at all of the things that I was doing presentations on, all these little things, that the, these topics that sort of really got me excited and got me interested. And I thought, oh, my gosh, these are all over the place. <laughs> These are these don't make any sense at all if you're you're looking at like a you know research trajectory or whatever you want to call it. Um, but then I was sat there and was like, no, there is a common theme that, and that common theme. It took me a while to figure out was contagion and contamination. Um, so I thought, okay, that's why I'm interested in all of these things that don't seem to to match up. Um, it's it's you know not only just the the belief and the the. Um, medicine aspects of these things, it's it's also that there's that that sort of underlying idea of contagion and contamination and how we use those words and and how different that is than how medicine uses them or even other disciplines use them um, compared to how the sort of, you know, the lay public uses the, these kind of terms. So I started thinking more and more about like, how do we talk about this? And, and I was really getting um, pretty worked up about especially um, the MMR autism debate because there were so many people who kept talking about like how it, it was sort of weird the way they were talking around it. They weren't directly saying this, but they're sort of talking around this idea that they would rather have a child that died than a child with autism. And that really bothered me. 
Um, Because that was not necessarily the overt message, but it was definitely there. It was definitely in the the context of what they were saying. And that was really upsetting to me because, you know, for obvious reasons, that's a terrible thing to say. Um, So um, I I just sat down and I started thinking like, my gosh, what, what are people what are some of the other things that we're silently coding and not even realizing it or, or we're saying a lot more than what we think we're saying when we talk about this stuff. And a lot of it was about contagion and contamination and what we thought about it and what we, what we kind of experience in this idea that things that are contagious or contaminated that really aren't contagious or contaminated, but we still treat them like they actually are. That's I mean, it's it's really interesting because when when you look at the book, I, I, you definitely sort of there there is that sort of idea that this is a whole bunch of different topics, but also that contagion and contamination do really hold everything together as these sort of theoretical topics. Um, but so so you just said you know thinking about the definitions and what we mean by contagion and contamination, and this is something that you're sort of doing in the introduction itself. Is I mean, as among many other things, the introduction covers a tremendous around, amount of theoretical ground. Um, but so, so how how are we meant to think about contagion and contamination, and or or from from the perspective of this book, how are you how are you helping us think about these terms? You know, I I really want them to be thought of um, socially, and but I also want people to think about the implications that has, um, especially for people. Who might be considered by our, you know, by our sort of vague standards of contagion and contaminated, um, you know, how does that affect the people that we're actually talking about? Because I think a lot of times, um, the stories we tell and the words we use, we don't always think about um, sort of the larger implications of those things or the larger implications of those narratives. One place this, this really bothers me, I think, the most is um, talking about military, uh, sort of narrative and, and, and the sort of like military aspect of things like vaccines and things like cancer and other conditions where people talk about like losing battles or, you know, that kind of stuff. I, I just, to me, that's such a problematic narrative because when we talk about it in those terms, we make it sound like it's something that if they just tried harder, they could overcome. And that really bothers me. Um, it bothers me in disability studies. It, it bothers me in, and, you know, all the, the sort of larger health context of, um, you know, maybe us just thinking a little bit more about when we say that kind of stuff, it, it's probably not something that we're necessarily aware of. Um, and, I got, you know, I know I say things all the time that I don't think about the larger implications of, but, you know, maybe we should think about those things. And maybe we should start to contemplate, okay, well, what does it mean if I say, you know, I, I believe that MMR causes autism, so I'm not giving my child that shot. Um, what are the larger implication of that? Um, so I, I think sometimes that's what we kind of forget about in these narratives is that we're, we are talking about um, people, right? And I, as folklorists, we should be hyper aware of that. If, if any other field can't, you know, is, is going to be aware of, of how involved we are um, with our, our, the people we interview and the people we talk to, it should be us. Absolutely. And, and I mean, I think, I think, I think that's a great point, sort of paying attention to the, the language and the metaphors that we accept in our discourse, right? Mm. Uh, when we talk about these situations, that's a really interesting point. So thinking about this introduction, because I mean, other parts of the introduction, you're talking about the stigmatized vernacular and tellability, um, which comes up a little bit later as well, um, and folklore and popular culture. How, how do all of these, uh, how how do all of these sort of come together for you? Like sort of the issues of sort of, so there's contagion and contamination, there's mm-hmm. folklore and popular culture um, and, and, and issues of tellability and stigma. Like how do, how do these, um, th- this is, these are a lot of different sort of strains of, of, of folklore study in some ways, but in other ways, they're, they're natural partners. Um, how, yeah. how, do, how do you see that working out? Um, so, I think it works out so beautifully, um, sometimes, especially on the internet. <laughs> so kind of talking about the medium as well. Um, but it's it's so interesting to see how a topic becomes tellable when we start talking about it. So it's this this sort of weird, vicious circle of, you know, you can't talk about it, but you're supposed to talk about it. And that talking about it's the only way to make it, you know, something that we can actually um, have a discourse about and start to destigmatize. Uh, but we're not supposed to talk about it. So yeah, that makes it really complicated. So I love this 
that so many people, especially in different forums online and all these different social media platforms are starting to talk out about things that maybe they wouldn't have talked about before. Um, and in part, because I think they do feel protected in some ways by the, you know, the, the, the anonymity of the internet, um, they can put something out there and it's just out there and it's, it's okay. They're not saying it to another person directly and they can't see the expression on their face all the time, but it, it resonates with other people and maybe not people in their immediate community, but in their larger community. Um, and I find that really interesting to see how, especially something like um, the destigmatization of something like mental illness is really happening completely on the internet. And, and it's all these people saying, Hey, listen, you know, I have this, this is what it's really like. Um, all of this stuff, maybe you should think about it um, when you're, you know, saying when you're using different words or you're talking about different phrases or when you're, you're just conception of um, or sorry, your perception of what people are like. This this is me as an individual. And, and hey, look, I'm not alone. All these other people like this post or they you know, are reblogging or reposting. And, you know, this this becomes this larger story about tellability. And finding a place to, to be able to tell those stories is so important because I think a lot of times, too, this, this does influence medicine. Um, Diane Goldstein wrote about this with menopause, where all these women on the Internet were talking about their conditions and saying, like, hey, listen, here's all these symptoms of menopause that aren't being recognized. Let's start giving those like we recognize them. We know this. We're telling each other. Um, let's start telling other people about it. And I think when you start to, to move that into that, you have that small group of people that you can tell, and then you sort of have the larger world that you can tell. And when those stories get out there, that changes the tellability. It changes um, the notion of authority. It changes all of these different things. And, and, fundamentally for the positive, for the most part, I think for most people in these communities, it's not always 100% positive, but I think in general, they they do seem to get a benefit out of this, and this ability to talk to other people about their conditions and have them, I mean, sometimes that's all we want is somebody else to say, yes, I understand you, I'm going through the same thing. And that's definitely happening, especially in, in when it comes to issues related to health. That's really interesting. But at the same time, I think you you also say that not every story needs to be told and not every yeah. sort of thing needs to get sort of preserved or, or needs to be sustained, right? Absolutely. Um, and that's kind of the other side of it is that some stories um, shouldn't be told or they, they come at too high of a cost to the teller. And that's something we have to think about. Um, also, no one owes us their story. Right. That's um, that's a big part of this as well is is thinking about um, is it what's the cost, um, but also that some stories, you know what, they don't need to be retold. They're already part of the dominant narrative um, that we don't need to hear about them anymore. We need to hear other people's stories. So sometimes those stories, you know, they keep getting repeated and they keep getting repeated. And and I think that folklorists like to at least. We like to at least think that we're, we're going out there after the marginalized voices, but we're still making a choice. Um, and that choice is based on a lot of different things, um, including things like our own personal background and race and our own experiences. So um, sometimes I think we don't intentionally give voice to the wrong people. I don't want to say the wrong people. There's no wrong people to give a voice to. Well, well maybe there are some, <laughs> but <laughs> there's a few. But <laughs> for the most part, we think we're giving our voice to, uh, or we're trying to help people get their own voice. Um, but maybe we need to to think about it in different terms because we're still thinking within our own communities to some extent. Um, we can never get away from that when it comes to, to ethnography is we're always going to be a part of that situation. And that includes the decisions we make of who to study and who not to study. So by choosing to study one group, we're choosing not to study a whole bunch of other people. And that's definitely a part of this, this decision that we have to make and that we need to make very um, thoughtfully. That's a really excellent point. Um, I feel like we could, we could keep pushing on this for the entire hour, but I don't want to take up too much of your time with that alone <laughs> because there's so much other interesting stuff to cover. Um, so um but I, but I think I'll, I'll try to make an interesting segue here now yeah. that I'm being very um, transparent about the method. Um, <laughs> the, the, the question of marginality sort of comes out right in the beginning of, of sort of the next chapter of sort of chapter two, where you're talking about um, sort of stories of immigration and patient zero. Um, yeah. <laughs> 
can 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 you sort of introduce the listeners a little bit to sort of how these how these uh, stories are working and sort of that socializing the idea of contagion? Sure. Um, so this is so interesting to me because before I really even started writing this book, I thought of patient zero as being a, a scientific concept. I did not realize how vague it is. <laughs> so a lot of times patient zero is, is defined as the per- first known person to have uh, a particular illness. But a lot of times it's just the first person that the one particular individual has found. Um, and a lot of times they find that person because they're looking in places that are um, what they they anticipate culturally they will be. Um, so that's really problematic because then that leads to more further stigmatization because of that. So if you're already going into something like um, an Ebola epidemic and you're like, okay, well, you know, obviously I have to go to Africa. Okay, well, if we're having an Ebola epidemic in the U.S. and you're saying we have to go to Africa, you're probably not incorrect. But if we're doing something like along the lines of, oh, we're having a measles epidemic. Um, and what a lot of people did was, okay, great. We should look at these communities that don't vaccinate, like um, the Amish. <laughs> it's like, no, actually, that's not the way to do this. Measles doesn't work like that. Um, so we need to, to look at the the larger community and, and all of the people who might not be vaccinating and these sort of things. So patient zero is this, this very vague concept that is very, very culturally motivated. And if we start to look at who patient zero has been, both historically and currently, um, it really does fit into people's stereotypes about who it should be instead of who it might actually be. And honestly, there, there's no real benefit to knowing exactly who the first person was. The first community, yes, because you're looking at spread. Um, but even then, that's not that important. You need to know where else it's spread. So it doesn't really matter who was first. It just matters where it is. Um, so it's so interesting that we have to have that narrative, though, and that patient zero as a, a a person and a character, or I don't know, it's sort of a folk anti-hero, I guess. Um, and knowing who they are and what they did becomes so important to us because it's the way we avoid the, the thing happening to us. Um, so if we can look at patient zero and say like, okay, well, they did this thing and this thing, and they're this type of person. Well, I'm not those things, so I'm safe. Um, and I think we forget that that's a really problematic um, idea. Yes, it makes us feel better, but then it really stigmatizes large groups of people um, because of of you know going into that situation with an already with a cultural bias. Absolutely, and I think I mean I think this comes out really well in the chapter, especially as you are sort of I mean you use so many different examples from typhoid Mary all the way into sort of the what is it the H one N one. Uh, scares and 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 SARS. I mean, there are so many different examples that get used, and it really comes across nicely. Um, the next chapter, though, mm-hmm. takes us to a very different idea of contagion, or or of of these issues. Looking at slender man and slender sickness and bullying, which is something that I had not actually heard of. Um, so. Uh, can you give us a brief introduction to Slender Man, Slender Sickness, and how these help us to understand the contagion argument that you're building here? Sure, absolutely. So um, I, I got interested. I had written another article on Slender Man, and I had come across this concept of Slender Sickness. And that was really fascinating to me because it was a list of symptoms. And I thought, oh, well, that's interesting. Is this, you know, sort of a, you know, anthropologist and, and other um public health people tend to call them cultural bound syndromes. And I was thinking, oh, this is interesting. Maybe this is like a cultural bound syndrome. And, and, you know, what are these kids describing? Because it was mostly um, teenagers that were, were kind of engaging in this. Um, and I also love that they, they had a quiz online that you can take to see if you have it, which I thought was pretty funny. <laughs> so I had to, to, to look at this because I was like, oh, wow, a list of symptoms. Let's, let's figure out what they're talking about. Um, and when I sat down and started comparing the list of symptoms, I thought, oh, my gosh, these are the symptoms of bullying. This is almost an identical list to the symptoms that, that people would talk about when they were talking about, is your child being bullied? Um, it was nearly identical. There's only a couple of things that that didn't fit or that I sort of was like, oh, well, maybe that could fit, but maybe it couldn't. It depends on your definition. Um, so I found that really fascinating to, to think about that as a, um, a way of talking about bullying in this way that, that the kids, I, I keep saying the kids, um, a lot of different people, uh, but, you know, Slender Man does tend to be 
a little more heavily in the adolescent area. <laughs> um, but it was a way for, for the people who are experiencing bullying to talk about bullying without using the word bullying. And I thought that was really, really interesting for them to, to kind of talk about the slender sickness idea. Um, but also that they were, were kind of seeing this as contagious. Um, they were seeing that, that bullying was something that affected large groups of people. It wasn't just something that one bully did to another person. It, it spread out through the community. So even if it, you weren't the person being bullied, it still affected you in a lot of different ways. So it kind of reminded me both of the the way that we pretend to perceive the, the supernatural as being contagious, or if we pay too much attention to it, it's going to kind of keep coming after us. If we talk about it too much, it will find us. Um, in that sort of way, too, with bullying, that there's this fear, um, not only with that, but then, you know, kind of taking it to the next level is, is uh, suicide. And there's a, a, a concept known as suicide contagion, where the more suicide happens in a community, um, the more people, you know, uh, try to die by suicide, which is really interesting too. Um, that it, it starts to be see as a um, an option, I guess, where maybe previously it was not seen as an option. Um, so that is a a really interesting idea that um, these things that are um, not, I mean, they are medical in some ways, especially if you look at some of the symptoms. They are they're physical symptoms to bullying, um, so they are medical, but also that they are. Um, spiritual and they are, you know, they're, they're contagious on a lot of different levels. So it's really interesting to see how people talk about that. And I, I sort of looked at, um, also looked at, at uh, fan fiction in Slenderman and how a lot of people were, were using that as a way of, of kind of making themselves feel better. Um, so they're also using Slenderman, not only to kind of, um, show the face of bullying, which of course, you know, Slenderman doesn't have a face, so that's really apt there. Um, but also to kind of use him as a character who destroys their bullies for them, um, which is really fascinating to see, you know, that they're they're kind of also taking that that concept and, and turning it on its head and using Slenderman as a way to um a, a way of sort of cathartic way of of destroying their bullying their bullies without doing anything physical to them. It's really interesting. So, so do you think there's this sort of maybe a link to to anthropological ideas of sort of sympathetic magic, where sort of yeah. the the in- mm. yeah, I think you- so for yeah. sure. That's it, it's really interesting to to think about how, um, yeah, the the notion of sympathetic magic is is pretty important in all of this because that that sort of like curing like idea. Um, a lot of, of belief about Slenderman is that um, that he is a, a Tulpa or a Gregor or, or sort of all these other things that we've thought him into being. So if we can think him into being in one way, maybe we can do it in other ways as well, right? So it becomes kind of contagious in that way. But that when we can also, to some extent, control him uh, because we've made him up, right? So we can we can make up his weaknesses. We can make up all those things, which makes it even more fascinating that Slenderman doesn't have weaknesses. There is no way to destroy Slenderman. Um, there's no sort of universally accepted way of of solving this problem of Slenderman, which makes it even more interesting that then he's linked with things like bullying and suicide. It's really fascinating. Um, now, now, but this, then there's this one example that that mm-hmm. gets used um, with the with this uh, native community. Was it Pine Pine uh, Ridge? Pine, yeah, Pine Ridge. Can mm-hmm. you talk a little bit about that and sort of how does that sort of expand from or expand mm-hmm. our thoughts? Because it's not it, it, it's it's a slightly different situation, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and a lot of the 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 things I read about Pine Ridge. Um, were, were how the media was portraying them and and how they at least their interviews were being used by the media um, because it you know honestly going into a native community would have required a lot more um, field work and permissions and a lot of those things not that I didn't want to talk to people but it was uh, one of those things where I was really interested in how they're being portrayed um, and wondering how they they kind of felt like that but there was a, a huge article came out that that sort of linked Slenderman to um, suicide contagion and in, in a specific region. And it was also linking it to bullying. And I thought, wow, this is really fascinating that, that this is happening in this native community and they're, they're using, or at least the, the, um, young adults in that community are using Slenderman as, as sort of a way of talking about this. So they're, they're kind of combining in some ways, um, a, a sort of 
concept of of medicine and of spirituality um, into a a form that they're calling Slender Man, even though they've had sort of more traditional versions of that in the past. Um, and seeing that that kind of combination of older traditions and, and newer um, internet folklore being combined by the young people in this community was really fascinating to see the, you know, the kind of talking about it in that way. Um, but it also, you know, really got to that larger issue of, of cyberbullying and of bullying and of, you know, sort of the intergenerational trauma that a lot of these, these kids were facing and, and how high the, the rates of suicide were there. And it was, it was just fascinating to kind of see this come out when all of the other stuff about Slender Man was out and seeing how this was a, a different sort of interpretation of that. But then I was also sort of bothered by the way that, you know, there was so much push of, of we need to tie this to a traditional Native American spirit. And, you know, there, there certainly is some connections, but it's sort of, also, that's a, a much more complicated sort of topic to actually do that. But so many people really wanted to push that because that was that fit into their concept of, of you know what how, what they think Native Americans are. Oh, that's really interesting. I yeah, that's sort of almost Orientalist, for lack of a better term. Sort Absolutely. of assumption. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, and and I mean, so going from sort of this this more sort of vernacular internet. Uh, tradi- uh, phenomenon. Uh, chapter four turns its focus to sort of full-on pop culture, um, with with your attention to vampires and zombies um, <laughs> as tropes for of uh, physical and moral comp- uh, contamination. Mm-hmm. That's the word. Yeah. Um, for that, that help us sort of think about our presence. Um, can uh, Can you talk a little bit about how popular culture is using these these characters to do different sorts of social sort of yeah meditation. absolutely so i always found um vampires and zombies to be just fascinating because they they come up so often and they're sort of a, a cycle that just is never ending right <laughs> you'll see them sort of rise in, in vampire zombies for a while and then they'll they'll kind of fade to the background and then they're back up again um, but we're never really without those two things. Um, there's always going to be th- something out there about vampires and zombies and, you know, to, to sometimes serious, sometimes funny, but there's always that narrative out there. And I was really fascinated by how much of those stories um, are directly about contagion and contamination. They're about, you know, a, a zombie virus or they're, you know, they're so directly related in, in so many different ways. And that we've used this as, as such a great metaphor for so many different things, especially for um, the change in, and people and this this idea that it's someone that looks like a loved one but is no longer that person. Um, so it becomes that that other in, in such an interesting way, but a, in a very scary way too, because it, it's an other that looks just like the person that we knew. Um, so I really thought that was really fascinating, but there's so much there to talk about. And it's such a flexible metaphor for so many different things um, in culture. So you see, you know, vampires and zombies representing you know, the, the worst in humans or, you know, actual viruses or anything to, you know, like, let's talk about, um, you know, paranormal romance and, and vampires, um, which is just fascinating too, where you have the, the, the sort of, it's only, you know, it's always a male vampire and a female almost always um, who fall madly in love. And then she has to get him accepted by the community in some sort of way. Um, so instead of that, that older sort of trope of, you know, the the othering vampire coming and stealing away your white women now you know your your women are saying like hey guys let's let's accept the vampire into our culture so it's such a flip of of sort of the traditional vampire narrative which which really kind of makes it it makes it interesting and fun um, but it it also shows you how important some of these things are because they're they're talking about a totally different they completely change the narrative instead of the you know the white woman being captured away. Um, now she is the one that's it's empowered and is you know feels strongly. Um, she is the one who offers forgiveness and and um, you know sort of salvation um, for the vampire by forgiving him. Um, so she she takes a much more empowered role, um, but also is the the sort of bridge between um, the other and you know people and and their own communities. So it, it's really such an interesting narrative to watch, kind of how it's flipped so much. But at the same time, the onus is still on on the female characters. Yes, 
absolutely. To, to sort of <laughs> yeah, she's got to fix everything. So, <laughs> I mean, it's nice to see she has that power, but it's also, I don't know, it seems a little unfair to put all that burden on her. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it really is. But I also love too that there's um, less of that that sort of, why did she embrace the dark, you know, kind of thing. Um, and more of a, you know, like, this is, you know, this is being normalized in some sort of way of, of you know, that the women are, are going to marry people outside of their small social group. So that's kind of interesting, too. But yeah, she's still got to do all the work. <laughs> I guess you can't change everything all at once. <laughs> no, you can't fix all the problems yet. So... <laughs> So does it become easier, though, to talk about sort of this interesting correlation of supernatural and moral contagion mm-hmm. when these problems are not stories about us or about us humans? Absolutely. Um, and that's kind of what I love about the 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 genre of both horror and sci-fi is that's a place where we've always explored these ideas. Uh, without actually directly talking about them. So if you sort of like look at the history of of any kind of movie that's like a sci-fi or a horror movie, they talk so much about what's happening right then and there in culture. And it's a way of us talking about it and kind of playing with those ideas and those fears without actually directly talking about them. So, you know, we can say something like, um, you know, I'm, I'm really worried about, you know, vampires and zombies when what we're really saying is I'm really worried about immigrants right? (laughs) We're worried about these other people coming in. And it gives us a place to talk about that in a way that's like, well, we're not talking about that. We're talking about this other thing. Um, So I think that's a really important space for us to process and and think about this stuff. And I was actually just talking to somebody about this yesterday, where um, we don't realize how much these things are are influenced by science. Um, So sci-fi and horror always have a a sort of what's happening in science element to them. Um, So we're talking about, you know, oh, I'm afraid of of, um, zombies, but we're talking about I'm afraid of viruses. H1N1 freaked me out. And I'm worried that my kid's going to get measles because there's all these people out there not vaccinating. Um, So this gives us a kind of different way of talking about that. And that's really important because it does um, reflect our culture and our society, but it also reflects what's what's actually happening in science. And I think that's really fascinating. Absolutely. I, I I was just thinking when reading when reading the chapter about sort of the the plethora of shows and films that seem to have a, ba- a bad guy, a, an antagonist, mm-hmm. that's the right word, mm-hmm. um, who seems to be who who's trying to be too draconian about climate, for example. Is, mm-hmm. I feel like there are several shows that do that now and sort of this anxiety about the climate, but also about how we go about trying to do it. Absolutely. Um, it. I saw a great horror short that was, um, it was a, a sort of Lovecraftian kind of thing where the reason why Cthulhu comes back is because the polar caps are melting. <laughs> so I thought, wow, what a great combination of, of our fear about, um, you know, what's happening climate change wise, but, you know, linking it to this sort of older, um, notion of, of horror. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah. Um, can you maybe, can you maybe bring out one example from, from the, mm-hmm. the zombie, dra- uh, zombie vampire oeuvre to, to <laughs> sort of demonstrate some of these ideas that, that you've developed? Um, oh gosh, now I'm trying to think of one. <laughs> so, this is always the hard part. Um, trying to actually remember what I've written is also very difficult because it feels like it's so long ago now. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, it takes time to get these published. Yeah, it, it really does. I feel like I started this a, a very long time ago. Um, I think probably if we're talking like from a pop culture standpoint, um, there's this this beautiful moment in True Blood um, that's in every single episode because it's in the opening credits where they go past... Uh, a sort of light up sign that says God hates fangs. And like, that's just such an obvious um, callback to other things that people have said that God hates. And it's just, it's so in your face in that moment that it's, um, it's just such an incredible cultural moment because it, it kind of gives you that parallel of, you know, the way people are treating vampires in this show is the way that we perhaps treated people who are, um, you know, who were gay in the past. Um, and this is, you know, this is such an interesting cultural moment to talk about, okay, well, who then is 
going to be stigmatized next? Um, who are we going to be afraid of next? Um, as if we get more accepting of this, then what does that mean that's going to come up next? And and that's such a, a an interesting sort of moment to to look at and just to think about. Um, even in the the first episode of that show, they did a great job of of really playing with stereotypes about who you thought would be the vampire. So you have this this sort of guy that looks sort of stereotypically goth coming into a convenience store. Um, and he looks what we perceive to be as a vampire. And then we learn pretty quickly that it's actually the guy behind the counter who looks like a sort of stereotypical redneck character is the actual vampire in the situation. Uh, so it really kind of plays with our ideas of, of who this story is going to be about. Oh, that's great. <laughs> um. You know, and uh, that that particular example is perhaps a little bit apt because in mm. the next chapter, um, sort of sexual orientation comes up again. Mm. Um, part, uh, I, I, but is only part of this larger discussion of uh, questions of HPV and the HPV vaccine. Yes. Um, can Can you uh, tell tell us a little bit about sort of the legends and rumors surrounding the HPV vaccine that and and how how they the the sort of the discussion of uh, uh, sort of what uh, how the choice of vaccination or non-vaccination um is perceived in different communities yeah absolutely so um there's a lot of different rumors about the hpv vaccine and and, and hpv in general um it's a really complicated um sort of illness or virus, I should say, um, because it's sexually transmitted technically. Um, so it's one of those things that, that, that you know, you, you get it through sexual transmission. So it's technically a sexually transmitted disease. However, almost everybody has it. Um, so it's, it's sort of widespread, but, uh, you know, only certain strains cause cancer. And, and it's, it's sort of this weird thing because of that. So it's something that almost everybody has, but it, we don't want to talk about it because it's sexually related. Um, so that makes it really complicated to kind of have these discussions about it. And and it's interesting too how we've, we've because of the way that they've chosen to um, get the vaccine out there, we tend to think of it as a female problem um, when it actually isn't a solely a female problem. Um, and and for some reason, they made the, uh, they made the choice to um, start vaccinating women before instead of women and men, which is how they should have done it all along. They should have been vaccinating everybody. But for some reason, they chose to, to focus on women. And they've really made it this, this issue that it's become stigmatizing for women. And in part because there's this idea that um, for a while that people felt that this was going to make um, women more promiscuous. And especially because we give the shot so young, we give it to, to usually about 12 is the, the oldest age we really want to give this shot. We want to do it even earlier if we can. Um, there was this idea that somehow it was going to make it like it was going to make young girls more promiscuous because I was like, yes, that's exactly what's stopping, you know, young women from being promiscuous is the fear of maybe eventually getting cervical cancer. <laughs> like that's obviously not what's going to happen. Um, but it was so interesting to see how many people out there were, were talking about this and saying like, Hey, you know, I think this is going to make, make women more promiscuous. Of course it's not there. That's not what this is going to do. So it actually led to all of these studies where people went out to prove that um, the HPV vaccine does not cause promiscuity. There's nothing in the ingredients that causes promiscuity, which was kind of mind blowing to me because I, I sat there and watched this and, and watched this happen and, and, you know, medical articles being published. And, and like a part of me was like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. Um, and also I was very, very jealous because why didn't I think of this and apply for a grant and get a whole bunch of money for it. <laughs> but I was a little upset with myself for that. But anyway, um, but then I realized how useful it was because then when you search for things like promiscuity and HPV, the first thing that comes up is all of these medical articles about how it doesn't cause promiscuity. So that was kind of a, a genius idea in the long run. Um, but there's also to these ideas because we decided not to give that vaccine to um, young men, we ended up also causing a secondary issue of them thinking that it meant something specific if a doctor offered it. So when we started to get it to, to men as well, um, or young men as well, um, there became this idea that, that somehow that meant something about um, the boys who were getting it. And it became a rumor that, that this was linked to um, thinking that 
your son was gay. And that's why they were suggesting the the vaccine, um, which is ridiculous because it's it's for for herd immunity because um, the HPV causes more cancers than just cervical. It causes a lot of other types of cancers. Um, so there's a lot of reasons to get this vaccine for everyone. But this this sort of rumor started that, no, it was because your son was perceived as as being gay. Um, and I just thought like, wow, that is so interesting and kind of ridiculous and crazy. Um, but I first heard about it because I had, you know, a, one of my cousins called and said, hey, you know, I, they're suggesting this vaccine for my child. Um, how do they know that he's gay? And I was like, what do you mean? How do they know he's gay? I had not even heard of this. And so there, I realized that there was a sort of rumor going around that this was you know, part of the the belief system that was happening. And, and it wasn't even that people were upset about it. They just wanted to know, like, what were the signs? Like, how can I tell when my child is six, if he's going to be gay or not? Um, and that was just fascinating to kind of hear people be, be sort of obsessed with that knowledge, um, or, or wanting to know that um, at that age. So it was really kind of interesting to, to see how people were perceiving this in so many different ways, and, and how they were using especially humor to talk about this. Mm, yeah. And and I mean, the humor point is really interesting to me because um, there was sort of, I mean, the, the, perhaps the, the most, the clearest examples in my mind were around the, um, were around sort of the, the Bachman uh, affair that you mentioned mm-hmm. where, where she had said that, um, that she had heard something about the HPV vaccine and then people like Stephen Colbert came out and were sort of being doing their mm-hmm. st- satirical thing, uh, sort of mocking people who have that belief. Um, and, and, and you link that also back to the question of tellability and untellability around, you know, if you're going to be mocked for a vernacular belief, then it becomes uh, sort of untellable. But at the same time that the idea that sharing experiences is an effective way to uh, push the needle on some of these issues. Can you talk about how that works? Yeah, absolutely. So it is, it's, it's problematic because there's a part of me that's, I mean, I laugh at these things too, because it is kind of, especially Colbert's sort of, um, you know, the journal of some lady that I just met, I thought was great. Um, so on like one level as, as an academic, it bothers me. But then on a, another level, also as an academic, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, you know, you're shaming people for their beliefs. That's really problematic. Um, you know, instead we should be having these discussions because all that's going to do is, is actually solidify their belief. They're just going to say, oh, well, these people are just making fun of me. I can't trust them. Um, I can't talk to them about these things. Um, so I think that's where it becomes really, really problematic in that, that notion of tellability. So instead of having a conversation with someone where you say, oh, really? Now, why do you believe that? Or, you know, how can we talk about this some more so you can realize that maybe that's not true. Now we've just totally shut down that conversation. And that's problematic because that actually stands out even out further than just one individual. Um, it becomes people like that, um, which will might extend out to um, educated people. Educated people are going to make fun of me for my beliefs, so I'm not going to tell them my beliefs, which means there's no room to have a discussion about these beliefs. Um, so, And that, like I said, that kind of extends out. So you see Colbert make fun of it, and then you start to think, well, okay, um, my doctor will probably make fun of me too. So I'm not going to bring this up. Um, and then that's where we have like some real issues with it. Mm, yeah, I can, I can see that being a, being an issue. Now, are there any sort of, when, when talking about, so personal experience mm-hmm. narratives as being a good antidote, antidote to this and to, to, as you were suggesting, the ability to say these things online to, to, has pushed our needle, the needle on issues of mental health, for example. Mm-hmm. So, so are there any, um, like when we make something tellable and when we tell these personal experiences, it, it contributes to that process, presumably. Are there any sort of factors or features that make for a good uh, or an influential or an impactful personal experience narrative as far as you can tell? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think... Um, emotion about it. I, and I don't want to say just emotion. It's sort of emotion and passion together. So feeling strongly about something, I think really makes something more impactful. Um, speaking, you know, about it from the heart, I guess, for lack of better terms. Um, and I hate to make it sound that way, because it, it sounds like, I don't know, there's a, it, it, you know, the, the sort of idea of emotional, uh, 
things are are not only frequently linked to to how women speak about things or when we're perceived to speak about things, um, but also as being irrational. And I really hate that um, because I think that you can use emotion and passion to talk about something in a way that's very effective, but is also correct or is, you know, in line with medical science or all of those kind of things. Um, so I, I don't see, I, I think a lot of times when we hear those terms, we think immediately of um, someone being too emotional or something like that. But I think showing um, passion and showing that you care about something is a great way to talk to other people about it and get them, them involved about it and excited about it too. Absolutely. Okay. That's, no, we can all work on that, I reckon. <laughs> um, okay. And so the final chapter that's sort of the body of the book mm-hmm. uh, is about sort of stories about sort of the kiss of death and, and, and sort of this, this issue with kissing and intimacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you, you start by talking about this idea of sort of the intimate other or the intimate stranger mm-hmm. that reminded me of Eden, of Ian Brody's um, the vulgar art where he's, mm-hmm. he talks about sort of these intimate others, uh, the comedian as intimate other, but you mean it in a very different way. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm looking at the intimate other as, um, someone that you don't really know yet, um, but you may have been intimate with in some ways. And it might be something like going out on a date or a kiss or, or someone that you've had sex with, but maybe is not well known to you at this particular point. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so how do, how do the narratives of sort of dangerous intimacy potentially uh, help us understand issues of gender and comfort in, in, and, and contamination in, in broader society, I guess. Um, yeah, that's, it's a great question because it's, it's really fascinating to look at all of these as sort of a, a large body of work about um, kissing and intimacy um, because, especially because when we're talking about like the intimate other and this person who you don't really know very well, and maybe is outside of your group, um, and as something bad happens to you because you've been intimate with them. Um, and it, again, it might be varying levels of intimacy. So if you, you go back to the, um, the, the uh, urban legend that's commonly known as the necrophilix kiss, um, it, it's about a woman who goes out on a date with a, a guy. And at the end of the night, um, he invites her to his house. Um, she says no, typically, um, but they kiss and then they kind of go on and, you know, this is a, a successful date. It is an okay date. Like everything is fine. They're probably going to go out again um, until she starts to sort of develop this rash around her mouth. So she goes to a uh, someone to, to see what's going on with that. And she finds out that um, it's caused by, usually they even call it like a corpse worm or something like that. Um, so that she has gotten this condition from kissing this person who is clearly someone who is engaging in necrophilia. So that they're either a, a cannibal or they're, they're a necrophiliac, um, but as someone is it's working with dead bodies in a very inappropriate way, and that she has gotten this sort of near miss. Uh, she has almost been, um, not only almost been uh, infected, but she has been infected to some extent. Um, but she could have maybe been the next um, victim as well. So there's, and in some narratives, they actually go on to the the finding out that the you know, the police going after this person who is is doing these inappropriate things with dead bodies. Um, so all of that really, that kind of tells you about this sort of near miss of um, of putting yourself out there and, and being in a, in a situation where maybe you are dating and you're being intimate um, in these ways that, that lets you know about some of the dangers of those situations, which I think a lot of a lot of urban legends actually kind of circle around that. That goes back to the, you know, the, uh, the hook man legend and all of that kind of stuff too, um, where it's all about dangers of intimacy with people that maybe you don't know. Um, and there's about this larger idea of, of not just the person you don't know, but what they're capable of. Um, and it's, it's kind of interesting too, to link those back even to, to like the HPV type legends where, um, a lot of people might remember the, the early, um, AIDS campaigns where they talked a lot about how like you're not just having sex with the person you're having sex with everyone they had sex with. And and they would sort of frighten you into this, this thinking about this um, as a larger sort of issue of it's not just that person, that person is fine, but what about all those other people that are associated with that person? Um, So it really kind of brings that idea out into this sort of broader context of contagion and and contamination in a lot of different ways. Um, So it's, it's fascinating to kind of sit back and look at that. Uh, But then when we start to look at the larger legend complex, um, the intimate other, 
you know, sometimes bad things happen, sometimes they don't. But if it's someone, if the kiss happens from someone that you love or that you really care about or is someone known to you, like you are definitely going to die from that kiss. (laughs) So a lot of the other ones you might survive, but if it's a kiss from a loved one, you are dying like 100% of the time. (laughs) Okay. Remember that. Um, so, and, and, and is this mostly about controlling female bodies and, and female behaviors or is, or is this something where both, uh, male and female characters can, can struggle with a, this sort of kiss of death? Um, you know, that's a great question because I think historically it's been mostly about female characters and females being in danger, which is pretty common in most urban legends. Um, but I think it's actually starting to shift a little bit. So we're actually seeing this in, in other types of legend too, where there's becoming more and more about um, about male bodies being in danger too. So I think that really started to happen with um, the AIDS Mary type legends and now we're we're starting to see it happening a little bit more with um, with some of these other legends too. So um, one of the ones that uh, one of the legends I talk about in there is the peanut butter kiss, which is um, based off of a, an actual incident of a, a woman who kisses her boyfriend. Uh, he has recently eaten a peanut butter sandwich. She is allergic to peanuts, and she eventually dies from from this contact. Um, and that one I've actually seen, um, I still primarily see it as the woman dying in that situation, which is very urban legend sort of focused, um, where the woman suffers the most. And, uh, but I'm starting to see shifts in it now too, where it's, um, you know, the, the boyfriend dies instead of the girlfriend. And, and so we're, we're starting to see like little shifts where, um, some of that revenge is, is happening by women or some of that, um, in this case, it's obviously not a revenge situation. It's, it's just a, a simple thing that we would do all the time, but it reminds us, um, both of the dangerous situation, especially with allergies. Um, but there's, that there's also danger, even when we, we feel safe and comfortable that there's still danger in our lives. Oh, that's really interesting. I'm I'm really intrigued by that development. Mm-hmm. Um, so so after that, you sort of finish off with this conclusion, and uh, in the conclusion, you ask a number of a number of questions, but then also sort of um, discuss uh, how or, or remind how narrative attention to narrative and storytelling, mm-hmm. and what you've been calling throughout the book is sort of monstrous hybrids. Mm-hmm. And how how these have an important role to play in the contemporary world, um, and I guess um, since we haven't really touched on this this topic of monstrous hybrids, maybe we can sort of end with that. Can you talk a little bit about sort of how you see these hybrids and and what they're doing uh, in our discussions of of public health and beyond? Yeah, absolutely. So, and I I think those. The, you know, I, and I love that term monstrous hybrid. I think it's just such a cool way of talking about it um, because we do tend to think of things instead of being greater because of their hybridity, they're somehow contaminated by their hybridity. Um, and we, we tend to put that into the category of the monstrous. We tend to think of them as, as sort of, you know, going back to, to Mary Douglas and thinking of, of things that fall out of categories as being very good or very bad. Um, in this case, it's almost always very bad. Um, so we, we get this this person that's sort of in between worlds. Um, they are one thing, but they're not. Um, they're, you know, they look like our loved one, but they're a zombie. They look like our loved one, but they have HPV. You know, um, it seems kind of like, oh, wow, that's, you know, that's a big jump to make. Um, but that's essentially what we are saying in a lot of different ways is it's, it's someone that looks like us and acts like us or looks like a loved one and acts like a loved one, but isn't that person anymore. And I think that really kind of shows a lot of our fears uh, about modern society. It shows our fears about um, contagion contamination. It shows our fears about um, what happens when kids leave home or they go on the internet or they do any other sort of host of things that worries us. Um, It's that whole idea of control and not having control over um, who you come in contact and largely living in a, a more and more global world that we're, we're influenced by the decisions other people make, but we, we can't control those decisions. So there's nothing we can do about some of these situations. Um, so we, we instead, this is a way for us to talk about them. It's a way to kind of mitigate our fear and, and to talk about our fears um, and explore them further and, and see if they're even, even worth being afraid of. Uh, it's really cool. As a as a frequent traveler, I notice that I am I am a dangerous hybrid in my own ways. I yes. suppose. <laughs> aren't we all? Right? <laughs> um, I think about that every time I get on a plane. 
Absolutely. Um, so we, we've taken up a lot of your time. Um, before we get to my standard last question, I just really wanted to point out that, so you have this appendix that's a reading guide. And this is not something we see very often. And I think it's really cool. And I was just wondering, I just wanted to make sure that you got a chance to sort of talk about yeah. its inclusion and what it's doing. Thanks so much for noticing that. I really, really wanted to keep that in there. Um, and I, I kind of, I, not that I was horribly opposed by it, but I, I definitely was ready to fight for it. Um, because I think uh, there's this really this idea in, in, I think, most disciplines that if we write a book for ourselves, that's great. And it needs to be extremely theoretical and it must be this and it must be that. Um, but if we write a book that other people can read, then somehow it's not really in our discipline. It's not real work in that discipline. And that always really bothers me because I, I'm like, why not both? Um, like I can write a, an academically rigorous book that can be understandable by other people. And, and hopefully that they'll pick it up and they'll say like, wow, these ideas are really interesting. I don't know a lot about this. I'm going to go look at this other stuff. Um, and I was also thinking too of, of teaching it um, because when I was looking at it and thinking about teaching it myself, um, although I'm always weirded out by teaching my own stuff, I don't, it's, you know, one of those weird, uncomfortable places, but I thought, you know, like, let's think about what other um, things go well with this, like what other concepts and folklore go along with this really well. And I, I think that's really important for us to to kind of frame our work both in historically in what folklore has done. Um, but to also think about like, go back and read the original because you might be inspired in a different way than I was. Um, and maybe, you know, fight me on it. That's awesome. I would love to have that conversation. <laughs> so like, I, I think that gives us more place to, to remember and play about our own discipline. And, and it shows other people, Hey, look, folklore has been doing this kind of work for a long time. It's not just this one person who wrote this one book. There's this, this whole body of work that you don't know about. And maybe Maybe you should. It's really, yeah, absolutely. And mm -hmm. I think it's, I mean, I think it's just really great to sort of see that in here um, because, because I think it, as you said, you know, to the extent that one would teach their own work, um, you yeah. know, having these, having these in place is really nice. And, you know, it's, it, so it's including uh, sort of relevant reading and um, as well as for each chapter and maybe some questions to consider for chapters as well. And I just think mm -hmm. it's a fantastic sort of, um, way of doing it. Thanks. Um, so, so having taken up all of this time of yours, um, <laughs> can I ask this final, one final question? What are you working on now? Oh, wow. Um, so I have been working on a couple of different things. Um, I think, Right now, uh, a lot of things I'm interested in right now, this is always how I work. I always have multiple projects at once. Um, I'm really interested in um, how ghosts are really white. <laughs> I guess it's the lack of better terms to say it. Um, that, that ghosts don't represent diversity. And this has come out, especially for me, I teach a study abroad in London every year. And London has been a multicultural city forever, basically. And But all the ghost stories about London are about white people. And that blows my mind because this has always been a multicultural place. Um, but when we start to look at, at ghost stories, like where is race playing into this? And a lot of times, especially where I live, if you hear about uh, ghost stories about African-Americans, they're always slaves. They're nobody else. Um, if you hear about other types of ghosts that just do, I don't know, normal ghost stuff, I guess, um, they're predominantly women, um, or they're predominantly white people. And that's just really fascinating to me. So I'm kind of interested in why is that? Um, and it, I'm sure it reflects a lot on the dominant culture. So that's one thing I'm working on. Um, my other big project, I'm really starting to look at um, the opioid epidemic and kind of how um, how both, I think, in some ways, the problem and the solution are within the the, the folk themselves. Um, and I think we're, we're going about this in a lot of different ways. And, and in part, that is... Um, my response to how places have been characterized um, that are uh, where the opioid epidemic seems to be hit the hardest, um, especially places like Appalachia and how Appalachia is being um, uh, represented in a lot of different ways, especially through books like Hillbilly Elegy and stuff like that. Um, so I'm really, really interested in that, that idea of, um, you know, we have this crisis going on, we're talking about it, it's important, um, but there are definitely voices being left out of it. We don't hear very much. We hear about a lot of, of sort of Appalachian um, notions of, of uh, the opioid epidemic, but without the recognition that, that, um, that oh, Black people live in Appalachia. 
that's something that people don't really talk that much about. Um, so I think that's really fascinating too, as a, as a part of this sort of complex. And I think in part that, that we're paying attention to the opioid epidemic because um, it is something that's affecting white people. And it, but it doesn't exclusively affect white people, and that's not part of that conversation. So that's part of what I'm I'm also looking at. But it's also um, it's also you know kind of personal because I grew up in Western Pennsylvania. So this is an area. My hometown now has um, a methadone clinic in it. So I've been really interested in how people have been talking about that when I go home to visit and when I you know, talk to people from the area and how they, they perceive that. So I think that's uh, those two things will probably coming in the future. I'm not sure which one will come first, though. <laughs> Oh, two fantastic sounding projects. Um, and being, as an Ohioan myself, mm-hmm. I, the the latter in particular, it it does speak close to home. Um, yeah. can't wait to can't wait to see the work that you come out with. Thank you so um, much. Well, thank you, thank you for for coming on the show, um, and thank you for taking time to tell us about uh, the kiss of death, contagion, contamination, and folklore. Thanks so much for having me.